You join us on our perch at the far end of the bar. He's Ben. He's Richard. And before you joined us, we were just starting to talk about climbing trees. Hmm. This wasn't something that was ever on your radar. No, not good with heights, me. No, ah, well, there you are. So, uh, you and you I know. are on the ground together. Yeah, looking one. at the uh, the braver boys uh, in the, or indeed. girls. We we had a couple of apple trees in our back garden when I was a kid, and um, they they weren't very tall. So I used to have a, and I'm talking when I'm about five, six, seven years of age, uh, and I try, used to try and climb those. I I think the best I did was I got to the to the lowest hanging branch mm. and just hung there like a sloth. Right. And that's the only memory I have of climbing a tree. And not much has changed in the intervening years. <laughs> I am still hanging there like a sloth. <laughs> and I don't even need a tree these days. <laughs> um, but some of the kids that I went to school with, I mean, they would be fan- they, they would go up a tree like a monkey up a, up a coconut palm. Mm. Right up to the highest branches. To where, you know, everything gets very thin and starts to creak. Yeah. And I'd be down at the bottom, fearful on their behalf. Well, that's the problem with vertigo, isn't it? It's not just when you're high that you get it. It's uh, watching other people do it too. But it's, it struck me when I started to think about this that climbing trees must have been one of the very oldest of human endeavours. It must have been, must not it? Because they must have looked up at the trees, seen the fruit or the nuts, or the seeds, and thought, we need some of those. What's that up there? Yeah, let's go and get them. Would it taste good? And up there, and of course, once you're climbing the tree, then your vistas are opening up before you. Yeah, a, a really easy way to get height. Strategically very important. Yeah, I, 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 there are people who will go free climbing up a tree and put a hammock 40 foot up. Top of a tree, nah. in the canopy. Why would you do that? Clamber into a hammock. And um, oh, I was going to say survey all before them, but of course you can't see a damn thing once you're up in the canopy of uh, the trees, can you? Have you ever been in a hammock? Yes, I have. It's rubbish. What happened? I, I fell out. Yeah, of course you did. <laughs> the first thing, well, for, for the first 20 minutes, I tried to get in. <laughs> you know, one leg and then another leg, and then you're upside down. Yeah. And the hammock just sits there looking at you like a puppy, going, well, why can't you do that then? Yeah, my memory of being in a hammock is uh, getting into it, twisting round and round while I clung on for dear life, approximately 10 centimetres <laughs> above the ground, <laughs> and then lying there thinking, why would you do this? I've never been less comfortable. Exactly. It's such an uncomfortable position, isn't it? Yeah. Let me just go back to the tree climbing for a second because there was a UK and Ireland tree climbing competition. 2019 was the last one when Michael Kerwin for the men and Joe Hedger for the women took the coveted wooden trophy. Well, if, if it is in fact wooden, I don't know. It wouldn't be silver, would it? Unless it was silver birch. Silver birch. Silver yeah. birch. See what I did there. But those two have reigned supreme for the last few years. Uh, Kerwin has won three years on the trot, but this is the thing. Joe Hedger, we, uh, this, this lady, Josephine Hedger, her name should be in lights because not only has she been the women's champion since 2009, 
in the UK and Ireland dream climbing competition. But she's also the reigning international Masters Challenge tree climbing champion and has been for a number of years. Goodness me. She's an international tree climber. She's a tree climbing legend. She is. A legend in the arboreal annals of arboreal-ness. Unfortunately, the 2021 international event is on hold at the moment, but if if you want to see this, Go and have a look on YouTube. The arboreal athletes in action. There's plenty of plenty of video, but you won't like it because it's not free climbing. They throw the ropes up, but they do leap about. Is there a crowd? Oh yes, but they're all really? dressed the same because they all want to go up the trees. Yes, it's just a oh. crowd of peers. But they've cut a very nice video together with some country rock, not green sleeves. <laughs> they should have used some treesy listening. <laughs> oh, very good. You might have to leave the country after that. <laughs> Deary me. I feel a bit sick. <laughs> I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> There's a lot of people now turning off. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I was wondering, shouldn't they have this in the Olympics? Tree climbing. Yeah. In the Olympics. Come on. I, running, jumping, throwing things, swimming. <laughs> yeah. Are we all past that now? (laughs) Well, I think the way ahead, and when I take over the Olympic Committee, as I surely will one day. Of course. Natural fit. Tree climbing and ballroom dancing. So you suggest we should forego the 100 metres blue ribboned event and replace it with... The 100 metres upper redwood. Right, and then for the ballroom dancing, is this for the Winter Olympics to replace the ice skating? Or... Oh, no, well, uh, no, I think this is a... Oh, uh, I hadn't thought this through. This is why mm. I won't get the job. Would it be winter sports or would it be summer sports? Well, Strictly Come Dancing is on in the winter, is it not? That's just for ratings. Right. Well, you're making these fundamental changes to the Olympics. I think ratings is one of the things you should be considering. Well, in that case, I think that definitely... Um, the shot put, which gets very little coverage. Let's face it. I love the shot put. Well, you say that. That's because you don't no, see I it do. very often. Well, yeah. Lumping a cannonball 20 feet. Now, come on. <laughs> come on. <laughs> oh, mama. <laughs> Lumping a cannonball 20 feet. How much, how much entertainment is in there, really? And the discus, basically a heavy frisbee. <laughs> it's rubbish, isn't it? It's it's rubbish. And that jav- did you ever do the javelin at school? Definitely did it on Daley Thompson's decathlon in the arcade. Here's the uh, here's the sound effect. Yep. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that will bring back fond memories to so many people. <laughs> Uh, but the javelin is a strange because of the way you carry it. It's it's a spear, and you have to, I, I, as I remember it, and and we're going back a while now. As I remember it, it kind of it's a, a motion that comes from behind your ear. I guess you know, in the same way as uh, world championship tree climbing has evolved from things that humans used to do a long time ago, so has the javelin evolved from spear throwing to uh, hunt down prey way back when. To chucking a thing into the air so it was a man in a white hat and a blue mm. short-sleeved shirt 
can measure the distance, the chance that a man in a small hat would get speared. It's always good to have a bit of jeopardy in your field events, isn't it? <laughs> isn't. Will the pole vault snap? Oh, yeah. But it does, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Occasionally it goes, and then, boy. Mm. You see, I, I, could ne- I could never do the high jump, let alone the, the, the pole vault. How do you get into pole vaulting? What what are people looking for? There must be a committee of people that are pole vault experts and know exactly the characteristics of a pole vault. And go round to different athletics clubs and say, you'd make a good pole vaulter. Would I? Well, how do you know? Speed, I think speed on the, um, on, on the run-up is, is one of the criteria. But then, the, the, were the, the planting of the pole and then the takeoff and all... How how do you get to even try that to start with? On, do they take them on a on a punt <laughs> on the river and say, "Well, see how you get on with this," and then gradually work their way up? Because they used yeah. to do that. They used to do that across the river, didn't they? Isn't that where pole vaulting came from? They, what they used to pole vault across the river. Well, just think. I'm sure I've seen this, where you would have a long pole, and if you wanted to get from one side of the river to the other, and there was no bridge. Then you would get yourself a long pole, run like crazy, plant the pole in the river, and your momentum would take you to the other bank. I think I've just discovered the origins of pole vaulting. Or have I just made all of that up? That sounds very good, doesn't it? I'm caught between the two things. You've either just established exactly what happened, or that was complete rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) And therein is the secret of the whole podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Can I interest you in a drink? I say with some trepidation. Well, when you say, can you interest me in a drink, it very much depends what comes out of your mouth next. Well, I'm indebted to Anna Freya from travelawaits.com for putting in the hard yards to research all these. Um, she lists a number of libations from which I have plucked three that I might tempt you with. So it's a choice of three here. There's got to be a good chance that one of them is going to tempt me. Well, I wouldn't be too sure. Oh, goodness. How about a refreshing glass of kumis? K-U-M-I-S. Okay, well, again, the name hasn't really enticed me, but carry on. This is um, horse milk alcohol. (laughs) Move on. Next. There's no point. (laughs) (laughs) To be more precise, this is mare's milk. It's, it's the basis well, yeah. of, uh, of, of course, <laughs> nothing strange here. I'm glad it's not. <laughs> it's the mare's milk, and it's the basis of an alcoholic drink called Kubis, beloved in countries like Mongolia, Kazakhstan, and Kyrgyzstan. The milk is not usually consumed in its pure form because... It's a strong laxative. So, it's no wonder that the Central Asian people have been fermenting it and turning it into alcohol for millennia. The earliest recorded mentions of kumis date from the year 5 BC. They love it. And it it comes in uh, nice bottles now. It's it's not like a a local thing with churns and things. It's, uh, it, it is a well, if you go in, if you ask for a bottle of kumis, you go into Ulaanbaatar. And just say, where's the local nightclub? And they'll point you towards uh, the local nightclub where, where all kinds of stuff will go on and you can buy yourself a bottle of kumis and you'll love it. 
but you don't fancy that. Are you saying they love it now, or they loved it in five BC? No, they 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 love it. They it's been on the slate for people who like a drink since five BC. Okay, so horse milk alcohol. Second one, I don't think you're going to like this. <laughs> really? No, I don't think uh, I don't think you're going to go for this. Seagull wine. Uh... Now, this is not just wine with a dead seagull in it, <laughs> like snake wine. Because snake wine is just rice wine that they stick a snake in. Seagull wine is made by the Inuit people of the far north, the result of placing a dead seagull in water and leaving the whole thing to slowly ferment in the sun. Is it interesting, isn't it? There seems to be a connection between a lot of these drinks, between the remoteness of the people who obviously have not much better to do and the craziness of the drink they come up with. Anyway, carry on. They're fermenting um, well, the, the seagull. Yeah, they ferment the seagull in the sun, and and when it's ready, oh, they just have a go on it. Really, I, don't, <laughs> I, I think I think the seagull wine is ready. Do you fancy a glass, Margaret? No, you don't. You don't. You don't fancy that. You'll like this one. So uh, hold on. It's been horse milk. Yeah. What was that? A liqueur? Horse milk liqueur? Was it? No, no, no. This is this is more like a beer. Horse milk beer. Okay. Yeah. Seagull wine. Yep. Yeah. Okay. What's next? The third one is sour toe cocktail. Oh my God! What's what? What is the toe from? Well, it's it's been served in the Yukon Territory since 1973. There are hardy men in the Yukon Territory, uh, big beards. Although we're not entirely <laughs> sure why they've been um, serving this, because it's not so much a cocktail as an ingredient that can be added to any drink. It's a real, preserved, human toe. Uh, A human toe? Human toe. Now, a number of people have donated their toes to the bar, obviously after they've uh, passed on. Or had really bad frostbite. And now, um, there's a small collection of toes, so you can order your drink, and then the, the, the toe of your choice is plopped in. Mm. There used to be a $500 fine for drinking the toe itself, uh, which yeah. was increased to 2500 when a man deliberately drank the toe in one shot in 2013. And that was deemed to be uh, out of order completely. Because why would you drink a toe that's in the bottom of your glass? There is only one rule to the sour toe cocktail drink. If you go into the Yukon Arms... And you, you say to Margaret, I'd like a, a sour toe cocktail, please. She will mm-hmm. pour you a drink. She'll plop the toe into the drink. You can drink it fast. You can drink it slow. But the lips have got to <laughs> touch the toe. Okay. And some people just love a challenge. So, uh, what are you going for? I've got to say, I'm not really fancying any of the three. And in fact, I think I'd rather go for a sour cocktail tail. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> oh, you're no fun, you. <laughs> I don't know. You can't describe a man who's going to drink a sour cocktail tan as no fun. <laughs>
let me tell you about the time that John Lennon asked Stanley Kubrick to direct the Beatles in The Lord of the Rings. Oh, go on. I don't know about this. This was, uh, I read about this in Far Out magazine. Uh, Jack Watley had written about this. And Leon Vitali, who was Kubrick's right-hand man, has just recently re released a documentary about his life with Kubrick. And this story apparently is part of this doc, right? So Lennon was apparently a huge fan of uh, Kubrick's work. He was nuts about 2001 and Space Odyssey yeah. in particular. So he took the other three Beatles to meet with Kubrick to try and persuade him to direct the movie, The Lord of the Rings. Starring the starring Beatles. The Beatles. And Kubrick wasn't too keen for maybe obvious reasons. I mean, Ringo is Gandalf, anyone? Hmm. So the project never happened. But just imagine for a moment if it had. And we ended up with a cross between 2001, A Space Odyssey, The Lord of the Rings Adventure, starring LSD-era The Beatles. Yellow Submarine. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely amazing. With Lennon McCartney providing the soundtrack and the Fab Four gallivanting around slaying Sauron and battling orcs. And I mean, Blue Venus. I'd have, I'd, have, I'd have paid money to I would have paid money. Actually, I would now, even now, pay money mm. to see that. Um, I'd pay money to hear the pitch. Oh, yeah. From help to the two towers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good Lord. And imagine if they'd managed to turn it into a trilogy. Years ago, before um, Peter Jackson got his hands on the rights and, and made that fantastic trilogy, um, I saw, being a big fan of the book, I saw an animated version. It was a mix of animation and... They did some filming and then posterized it, so some of the battle scenes... Um, there were real people involved, but then they posterized it to make it look animated. Okay. And it, was, it wasn't great. Some people hold it in high regard, but it wasn't great. And, it, and of course, it was very, very deflating to walk out with the words. I think the final words are something like a narrator could, could possibly have been Gandalf. And so ends, and so ends this the first book of the Lord of the Rings. They shall not pass. Was it Brian Blessed? If Brian Blessed is, I've been all right. Um, <laughs> Got something you want to tell us? Email thefarendofthebar at gmail.com or find us on Insta, Twitter or Facebook using the hashtag TFEOTB. Pub quiz. Always up for a pub quiz. Come with me to England in the 1470s. Okay. An interesting time. Um, in 1470, the Battle of Nibley Green in Gloucestershire was fought, the last battle between private armies ever mm -hmm. fought in England. Yeah. The War of the Roses was still raging. Henry VI was murdered in the Tower of London. William Caxton printed the very first book in English. Yeah. But this is the bit that I want you to concentrate on. I think you might have forgotten one thing that happened in 1470. That was the year uh, the spirit of Jacob Rees-Mogg was born. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and buried. A 
law was passed in 1477 banning football. Really? Well, this is what I'm going to ask you now. Is that fact or is that fiction? Well, now, uh, of course, the early versions of football were nothing like the game that we know and some of us love today. Well, it was a different offside rule. It was there. It was basically a mob having a right go at each other, chasing a pig's bladder, wasn't it? Did you not see um, some of the matches the other night? <laughs> so I can well imagine that more sensitive and sensible uh, people of the time would want that banned because who wants that marauding mob batting through your streets? Yeah, okay. So, do you want an answer now, or shall I cogitate? Um, well, you can cogitate. Can you say that? Co- no, cogitate. I turned into Eric Morgan there for a second, didn't I? Um, uh, yes, have a cogitate. Uh, and the question is, the banning of football took place in 1477. Back to fiction. I've got a little question for you, actually. Oh, go on, then. Spiders versus snakes. Who wins? When it what are we talking about? If, if there's a battle, as in Godzilla against King Kong, if there is a battle between a spider and a snake, who wins? Is that what we're talking about, or are you asking me which do I prefer? Who who would win? I mean, it's a bit reductive, really, but who would win in a battle between a spider and a snake? Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of things to be taken on board here. Mm. Um, one of which would be the size of the spider and the size of the snake. Yes. Because, obviously, if it's a money spider against a boa constrictor, mm-hmm. I know where my money would be. And I'm not a betting man. <laughs> but, now you see, you've got me thinking. Is there a spider capable of doing for a snake? Well, I'll put you out of your misery. On every continent except Antarctica, there exist snake-hunting spiders. Get out of here. Snakes up to a metre long can become the victim of spiders... Lots, uh, most of them are a lot smaller. But even extremely venomous snakes can be captured and eaten by spiders up to 30 times smaller than them. And are we talking... I don't know how much detail you've gone into here, but are we talking... And going back to the Lord of the Rings again, where Frodo gets um, caught in the spider's web. Are we talking about... Um, a spider that spins a web and then the snake gets trapped. And then the spider does for the snake whilst the snake is trying to get out of the web. It happens both ways. So there are spiders that spin incredibly strong and robust webs that are enough to stop the snake from being able to escape. And then they administer their toxin and the snake is done for. Oh dear. And it also happens the other way as well. Even... Snakes you'd have heard of as being extremely venomous. Coral snakes, rattlesnakes, and brown snakes in Australia, they're amongst the most venomous snakes in the world, are at risk from spiders such as you've heard of a red-backed spider and a black widow spider. Well, the black widow is very toxic, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I just love that thought of a battle between a spider and a snake like a true battle to the death like you see in nature when, you know, there isn't any kind of filtering or editing. One of them lives and one of them dies. And the little, I mean, I'm not a big fan of 
spiders or snakes. I don't mind them, but you know, if they're venomous, I'm going to be a little bit wary of them at the very least, yeah, right? Yeah. But I know who I'm rooting for. I want the spider to win. Thank you very much. Oh, do you? Yeah. Oh. The little guy. I think my um, attitude towards spiders was um, shaped at a very early age. There's a there's an old film called The Incredible Shrinking Man. Um, and it was one of the science fiction films that, that came out of the atomic age mm. after the Second World War. Um, basically, screenwriters in America wrote loads of films um, based on the idea that um, atomics could do all manner of things to people. Mm. And um, Matey Boy goes off with his missus for a little boat ride. She goes downstairs to prepare lunch. And he's up on deck when a strange silvery cloud passes over him. Okay. And he coughs and splatters a bit, but he seems fine. But, of course, it's cleared by the time she comes up with a ham sandwich, which means that he's been exposed to it and she hasn't. Hmm. Cut to the domestic household. And um, over the next few weeks and months, he starts to shrink. Okay. He, he complains that his shirts are too big he's losing lots of weight and then he realizes that he's losing height he's perfectly formed all the way down but he just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks it's a fine old film look it up mm. but it it he eventually becomes so small that he slips through a crack in the floorboard uh, having lived in a matchbox and the such like and he was gone from a doll's house to a matchbox to Sort of ends up in the basement. Mm. Now, down in the basement, there's some horrible, creepy, crawly things. Oh, yeah, when you're tiny. Yeah, and he's very tiny. Very, very tiny now. And he's a he's smaller than a borrower down there. <sighs> and there's a spider down there. And we know there's a spider down there. And we see the spider. And it's all set up nicely. Um, but he manages to avoid the spider until the day when he doesn't avoid the spider. And there is a battle royal between him and the spider. Really? And he uh, he has a pin, which is the size of a pole vaulter's pole vault, <laughs> with a with a with a spike on the end of it. There's a pin, and he's battling this tarantula with a pin. Mm. And I don't know how old I would have been when I saw this, but I wouldn't have been very old. And that has shaped my idea. Of spiders ever since. Have you ever seen Arachnophobia? Oh yes. Let me tell you why I watched a good third of that film unable to speak and with tears streaming down my eyes. <laughs> Go on. And if I had have spoken it would have been in a very high pitched voice. And uh, This is going back, well when was that released now? 25 years ago? Something like that? Yeah. This is in a very embryonic stages of my uh, relationship with my beautiful wife and I used to live in a flat in Clifton in those days tiny little place and we had a two-seater sofa and uh, we were sat there watching a the film a few friends around sitting on kitchen chairs and the floor and cushions and the windowsill like you do when you're that age we're watching arachnophobia and there's a really scary moment in the film and Sue sitting next to me on the two-seater sofa jumps up and grabs me right by the bollocks.
Okay, let's go back to the pub quiz, shall we? Okay. And just solve our little fact or fiction. Mm-hmm. 1477, wasn't it? Or today. 1477, I said that in 1477, a law was passed banning football. Fact or fiction? You've had time to think about this, to cogitate. Yes, I have cogitated. I'm going to say that it, that's a fact. That's a fact. Yeah. And as you rightly say, it, it, football was a different game then. Pigs' bladders inflated, kicked around by teams of dozens of young men. Mm. Playing football was seen as a distraction from practising archery. Oh. Now, archery was very, very important. It was, in fact, a mandatory occupation. Was it? Every Englishman, for much of the Middle Ages, had to practice their archery uh, and be an archer so that they were valuable in battle at the time. If if the call came, you had to pick up your bow and go. This led Edward III and Edward IV to ban football, first in 1349 and then in our year, 1477, respectively. The latter stated, no person shall practice football and such games, but every strong and able-bodied person shall practice with the bow for the reason that the national defence depends upon such bowmen. So it wasn't the fact that it was noisy or a big riot of a thing, which mm. I dare say football was in those days because it was... It was much more of a cross between football and rugby and wrestling and um, heavyweight boxing, I think. <laughs> yeah. um, but but it was to do with the fact that it was because it was so popular. It was distracting um, young men from their archery practice. Mm. Two other things. Two other things closely related. Also in 1477, um, they banned two types of skittles. Because people were people were getting far too interested in skittles and not enough archery practice. There is more than one type of skittles. Well, there. Well, I did try and discover what those two types of skittles were, and, yeah. and I went down a dead end. So, if anybody can tell us the different types of skittles that were being played in 1477, good God, <laughs> that would be something, wouldn't it? That would be, I mean, of all the things we've ever asked anyone to help us with, I'm going to be amazed if that one comes up. And I'm, I'm so convinced we're never going to get an answer to that. I'm going to give the email address right now. So there's no excuse. Oh, <laughs> if you know, you have to ping us an email to thefarendofthebar at gmail.com. Uh, there's also, there was also something called hand in, hand out. Right. Which got banned. I've no idea what that is, and again, I can we we can make up a lot of fanar fanar, but I cannot find out what hand in hand out was. Again, the email the far end of the bar at gmail dot com, uh, and I and spectators were obviously banned from carrying giant foam fingers in that year. But mm. apart from that, <laughs> apart from that, one other tiny little fact about football um, before we leave this subject and this podcast for this week, despite ordering the very first known pair of football boots, mm-hmm. Henry VIII of England attempted to ban it in 1540. Did he? The swine. What a misery. Indeed. He had to give his... He obviously was kept in 
by his mother to dub in his boots, and he didn't like it and affected him, and uh, he tried to take it out on the whole sport and his wives. <laughs> and that, I think, is time. Yes, I think that's time at the far end of the bar. Once again, I'm going to love you and leave you. Go to another bar and find someone who'll buy me a proper drink. That's time at the far end of the bar. You've been listening to Richard Lewis and Ben Orr. If you enjoyed your time with us, please don't forget to like and subscribe to make sure you catch the next episode. And find us on all the socials. Just search hashtag TFEOTB or email us at the far end of the bar at gmail.com. Cheers!